Well, good morning, Mission View Church. If you have your Bible apps or your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians, the fifth chapter. It was January 21st. It was a Tuesday evening. The snow that we had this winter was mounting. I was leaving our community group at the Hanson home. And all along the driveway of the Hanson home were these poles. Now, these poles were markers indicating here's where the driveway is. Outside of these markers is the lawn. Now, you know if somebody's going to take the time to line their driveway with these poles, that their lawn is near and dear to their hearts. Well, I did what I always do. I pulled up the driveway and parked on the driveway so I could have a clear entrance to the house because it was bitter cold outside. And we went in, we had an awesome time at community group, and then I went out and got in my car, and I began to text somebody as I was backing out of the driveway. And all of a sudden, I hear a little crunch. And so I slam on the brakes, and I look up, and I'm in the yard. And I decide, I'm just going to pull forward, no big deal, just slightly in the yard. And so I put it into drive and begin to try to pull forward, and I go nowhere, just increasing the divot that I am leaving now in their yard. And so I'm like, there's no chance. I've got nothing left to do but put it in reverse and just let her fly. And so that is exactly what I did. I put it in reverse and I gassed that baby. And as I'm hitting the gas, I see people just looking out their dining room window at me. Like, what is he possibly doing out there other than turfing our lawn? Well, that was the answer. There was nothing I was doing. I was turfing your lawn. As I finally made it back into the driveway, this pole shook. Because not only did I hit it, you can see here where my tire ran over it, and this is a tire tread. As I completely ran over this pole and it snapped back, hit my car, and then just shook in the wind. As I just watched the people staring at me in the dining room window, like you just turfed our lawn, which is exactly what I did. Because I took my eyes off what they were supposed to be fixed upon. There were boundaries. They were very clearly marked. These are orange poles that reflect when light hits them. You can't make it much clearer. Stay inside of these, moron, is what these scream. And yet I took my eyes off what I should have been focused on and I ran over this sucker and turfed a lawn in the process. In Ephesians chapter 5, first couple verses, what we see is as Christ followers, as Christians, what we need to keep our focus on, what we need to keep our eyes fixed upon. And Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Keep your focus on Christ. 
Now, I just preached on this a couple months ago, and if you, if you want, you can go online, missionviewchurch.org, and you can watch that sermon. We're not going to spend a lot, of times in, in, a lot of time this morning in verses 1 and 2, but what, what we do need to understand is that is the foundation of this morning. We need to keep our focus upon Christ. We need to imitate Christ. That is where our focus needs to be. The passage continues. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So there's the contrast. Our focus should be on Christ. Our focus should be us conforming our conduct to that which is like Christ, our Savior. Here's the contrast. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. And in our culture, we're on the drive home from Mission View this morning, you'll probably hear Timber by Pitbull, Drunk in Love by Beyonce, and Talk Dirty by Jason Derulo. It's a little difficult for us to keep sexual impurity away from our minds, and that's just on the ride home, on the radio. In an article entitled Design for Sex by Dr. Jay Bujachevsky, he's a, he's a professor at the University of Texas in Arlington, he writes this in his article, Design for Sex. Midnight, Shelly's getting herself drunk so that she can bring herself to go home with the strange man seated next to her at the bar. One o'clock, Stephen is busy downloading pornographic images of children from internet bulletin boards. Two o'clock, Marjorie, who used to spend every Friday night in bed with a different man, has been binging and purging since 11. Three o'clock, Pablo stares through the darkness at the ceiling, wondering how to convince his girlfriend to have an abortion. Four o'clock, after partying all night, Jesse takes another man home, not mentioning that he tests positive for an incurable STD. Five o'clock, Lisa's in the bathroom, cutting herself delicately with a razor. This isn't what my generation expected when it invented the sexual revolution. The game isn't fun anymore. Even some of the diehard proponents of that enslaving liberation have begun to show signs of fatigue and confusion. Naomi Wolf, in her book Promiscuities, reports that when she lost her own virginity at age 15, there was something important missing. Apparently, the thing missing was the very sense that anything could be important. Let me tell you about my students. In the 80s, if I suggested in class that there might be any problem with the sexual liberation, they said that everything was fine. What was I talking about? Now if I raise questions, many of them speak differently, although they still live like libertines. It's getting old. My generation may have ordered the sexual revolution. Theirs is paying the price. I'm not speaking only of the medical price of sexual promiscuity. To be sure, those consequences are ruinous. At the beginning of the revolution, most, phys most physicians had to worry about only two or three sexually transmitted diseases, and now it's more like two or three dozen. But I'm not speaking only of broken bodies. I am speaking, for example, of broken childhoods. What is it like for your family to break up? What is it like to be passed from step-parent to step-parent to step-parent? What is it like to grow up knowing that you would have had a sister? 
but she was aborted. A young man remarked in one of my classes that he longed to get married and stay married to the same woman forever. But because his parents hadn't been able to manage it, he was afraid to get married at all. Women show signs of avoidance too, but in a more conflicted way. According to a survey commissioned by the Independent Women's Forum, 83% of college women say marriage is a very important goal for them. Yet 40% of them engage in hooking up. Physical encounters, commonly oral sex, without any expectation of relationship whatsoever. Do you hear a little cognitive dissonance there? Can you think of a sexual behavior less likely to get you into marriage? The ideology of hooking up says that sex is merely for release or recreation. You have some friends for friendship, and you have other friends just for hooking up. They're called friends with benefits. What your body does is unrelated to your heart. The fact is that we aren't designed for hooking up. Our bodies and our hearts are designed to work together. Don't we already know that? In Friends, Friends with Benefits and the Benefits of the Local Mall, a New York Times magazine writer who interviewed teenagers who hook up supplies a telling anecdote. The girl Melissa tells him, I have my friends for my emotional needs, so I don't need that from the guy I'm having sex with. Yet on the day of the interview, Melissa was in a foul mood. Her friend with benefits had just broken up with her. How is that even possible, she said, sitting shoulders slumped in a booth at a diner. The point of having a friend with benefits is that you won't get broken up with, you won't get hurt. But let there be no mistake. When I say we aren't designed for this, I'm also speaking of males. A woman may be more likely to cry the next morning. It's not so easy to sleep with a man who won't even call you back. But a man pays a price too. He probably thinks he can instrumentalize his relationships with women in general, yet remain capable of romantic intimacy when the right woman comes along. Sorry, fellow. That's not how it works. And yet there's our culture. There they are. The sexual revolution started by my parents' generation. And now here's my generation dealing with the fallout as their generation's dealing with the fallout. And every generation that comes after us will deal with the fallout because this is not how God designed sex to play out. And as long as we operate sexually outside of God's boundaries and outside of his plan, there will be consequences. Not merely physical, but it will destroy every part. Parents, you need to talk to your kids about sex. You need to talk to your kids about porn. You need to talk to your kids about masturbation. You need to talk to your kids about dating. You need to have those conversations with them because everybody else is. Their peers are. Our culture is. Everyone else is having that conversation with your kids. You need to as well. And I know it's uncomfortable. And I know they don't like it. You know what else kids don't like? Eating vegetables, going to the doctor and taking medicine when they're sick, going to school and doing homework. And yet any good parent looks at their kids and they're like, you need to eat vegetables for your development. When you're sick, you need to go to the doctor and take medicine. I don't care how bad it tastes. You need to go to school. You need to do homework. You need to learn. Don't allow your child's, your child's hesitations to dictate your conduct as a parent. 
You need to have these conversations with them. And I realize it's uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable for them as well. It's just a weird dynamic, but congratulations, God has put you in charge of your children. So be the parent that God has called you to be. Have the tough conversation. I think one of the reasons this doesn't happen as often as it should is because in the parent's own life, there's sexual sin. How do you address something to your kids when you yourself are guilty? So you just retreat. When, when I was growing up, the church, we, we, we kind of missed it a little bit. Because when I was growing up, anytime we would talk about sex, anytime we would talk about sexual impurity, anytime we'd have any of these discussions, there was, the focus was all on abstinence. But we were aiming at the wrong goal. Because abstinence conveys that anything I do except sex is okay. And so at the same time that people are taking, I will remain a virgin until I'm married pledges, they were going and having, they were having oral sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend later that night, and they were still saying, but I'm keeping my virginity intact until I'm married. That's why abstinence isn't the goal. Purity's the goal. Purity contains abstinence. But purity doesn't stop at virginity. Purity doesn't stop at virginity. Now, if you're thinking, well, this is a, a great message if, if people are, you know, 15 to 27, but we're beyond this. No, this applies to everyone. A couple years ago, this statistic came out. STD rates have doubled among 50 to 90-year-olds over the past 10 years. Doubled over 50 to 90-year-olds. Think about that the next time you visit a nursing home. All right? <laughs> Just say it. Listen, 50%, 50 of Christians, one, one out of every two of us, 50% of Christians have said porn's a problem in their house. 50%. And ladies, if you're like, whew, finally something that just hits the men. 34% of church-going women, according to XXX Church, I don't know how many X's that was, there's only three. 34% of church-going women have, have admitted to intentionally looking at porn. This is a problem. And it's not a man problem. It's a problem for all of us. It's not a problem if you're under a certain age. Oh, it's, it's greater temptation, but it, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't end there. This is impacting all of us because we're a family. And this is going on in, in our relationships and in our marriages, and it's weakening them, and then we're leaving room for the devil to have a foothold. And if he can destroy our families, he'll destroy this church. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper 
among saints. Now, this whole idea of not even named among you, what that means is that sexual immorality should be so foreign when people think about you. It should be such a foreign idea and concept that they don't even link it to you. And so I want to talk to you if you're here today and you're not married and you're living with somebody. You need to stop. I don't care if you save money on rent. I don't care if you get more social security money, if you guys just, you're married in God's eyes, but you're not really married, and so you just keep living together because you don't want to take the reduction in social security benefits. I don't care if you're strong enough and you're a much stronger person than I, if you're living with somebody that you're attracted to and you have plans of being in a relationship with and you're not sleeping with them, I don't care. As Christ followers, what we were just told here is the appearance needs to be foreign. So you need to get out. If you trust God with your soul, trust Him with your finances. There are other ways to make rent. And if you can't figure that out, call me and let me know, and I'll help you with it. But you need to leave, even if you're not falling into sexual temptation and sin. You need to get out. Not even named among you. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Let that which comes out of your mouth be pure, be God-honoring, be holy. See, but, but things are so much more difficult now. They're so much more difficult than even when, when I was a teenager. I mean, when I was a teenager, if I wanted to call somebody, I had to go pick up the family phone, dial the girl's number that I wanted to talk to on her family phone, pray that her parents wouldn't answer the phone, and then really pray, really, really pray that during the phone call, my mom wouldn't pick up one of the other family phones and be like, hello? Brian, are you on the phone? Because God forbid the girl that I was talking to know that I had parents. I mean, nothing killed your game faster. And some of you teenagers have no idea the pain and the anguish and the turmoil that I feel because you've had a cell phone your entire life. And if you want to talk to a guy, all you got to do is put his digits in your phone and call or text him. You don't know the pain that I have felt. <laughs> and yet, when it's right here, it's so easy. So you don't even have to call anymore. You can just send somebody, hey, that's what I'm thinking. You can text them. Oh, and technology's been so good that, that not only do we have cameras in our phones now, but these bad boys are incredible. The camera in this phone's better than the first digital camera I ever bought. I mean, it's incredible what's in our devices and yet the temptation that's there 
Because now when you're lonely, they're just a text away. Now when you want their attention, you just send a little picture. You take it 30 or 40 times to make sure you're looking real good in it, delete all the other ones, send it to them. Now there's apps that they, they can't capture. I mean, it, it deletes, so nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to see. It's just something, something between you and them. It's a little something make you make you feel good. Looks good. And then the story goes that they capture the picture. And you break up. And they, showing their true character as somebody you should have never been talking to to begin with, decides to use that as motivation to get back. So not only do they save it for themselves, but they show a few other people. And all of a sudden, at school or at work or amongst your friends, everyone's seen. This is contrary to God's design. This is outside of the clear boundaries that God put in place for us to operate in sexually. And now it doesn't even have to come out of our mouths. Oh, it still does. But it doesn't have to. We have way too much technology for old-fashioned chat. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Let there be thanksgiving. Would you want your wife to hear the jokes you tell at work? Would you want your husband to read the Facebook messages you're sending to your ex? Guard your words and not just the ones you speak verbally, the ones you text, the ones you tweet, the ones you email. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, sexually immoral, impure, why, why would the Apostle Paul here lump covetous in, in with all of this? In, in idolatry, what is he talking about? And I believe very firmly speaking here of the desire for another, coveting someone else as a sexual partner other than your spouse. 
and allowing your sexual desire to be elevated above your relationship with God. That is idolatry. Anything that is elevated above God is idolatry. And so we see all the statistics of people who say, I'm not having an affair. And yet, it might not be physical, but in every other sense, there is an emotional Facebook affair going on. Desiring another spouse, desiring to be in a relationship with somebody else, it's dangerous. So, what are some ways that we can safeguard against this? Number one, have open and honest dialogue with your spouse. In his book, Measure of a Man, Gene Getz talks about being on the road and being in a hotel room and being tempted sexually. And then he shares what he did to combat that. He picked up the phone and he called his wife. And he said, I'm being tempted sexually. And he said, immediately, the temptation died. You need to have open and honest communication with your spouse. And here's what you need to understand we're all human. Temptation happens to all of us. You can't tie this into your self-worth and feel like if, if my husband thinks somebody else is attractive or if my wife is feeling tempted to, to talk to some other guy, that, it, that it's on you. You need to understand it's part of life. There are other attractive people in this world other than your spouse. Yes, you should only have eyes for your spouse, but there are other attractive people than your spouse. And the minute you try to deny that, you're, you're in a slippery slope and you're in a danger zone because it's not reality. So husbands... Talk to your wives. Wives, talk to your husbands. Be mature and understand that temptation is not sin. And be thankful that they were willing to confide in you and go to you and be honest rather than just bury it. And this is why sexual sin is so dangerous because there's so much shame involved and there's so much secrecy involved that when there's sexual sin, nobody feels like they can talk to anybody about it because they're just going to be judged. And so they just try to deal with it themselves and all of a sudden you just fall further and further and further into the trap because it is a cycle and you need to break that cycle and you need accountability and you need help. And I pray for the marriages of this church that the first line of defense could be your spouse who's supposed to be your best friend. Second, be sexually available to your spouse. 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear. Have sex frequently. Really, guys? No amens? 
have sex frequently. Except, the Bible says, except if both, if both, this is key, if both, if both partners agree and for a short time to devote yourself to prayer. So if you're not having sex and you're not praying, something's wrong. Have sex frequently. 1 Corinthians 7 goes on to say this, that your body doesn't belong to you. Husbands, your body belongs to your wives. Wives, your body belongs to your husbands. Sex isn't a bargaining chip. It isn't a tool to utilize to get what you want. I know that as, as life goes on, this can become more difficult for some people. So I just want to challenge you. Get over your pride and go see the doctor. If you need the blue pill, go get the blue pill. If you need to go to the drugstore, go to the drugstore. There's no shame. Get the products you need, but have a lifelong of sexual fulfillment with your spouse because that is how God designed it. Be sexually available to one another. And if there are physical things that are going on in your body which prevent that, go see a doctor. If you have little kids running around and you look at them and you just think, where do they have that energy? Because I'm exhausted. Get creative. Take an extended working lunch. Get up early in the morning. Drop them off at the grandparents' house. Call up a friend and be like, you need to watch my kids because I need to have some time with my wife. Do whatever it takes Get them out of the house and enjoy your spouse. That should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> I should copyright that. Now, some of you are going to say, but my spouse, my spouse has this incredible sex drive, and, and I just, we don't align, and I don't understand. And, and listen, we're not talking, don't go home and just be like, well, Brian said that we have to have sex all the time whenever I want, so five times this afternoon, let's go. What we're talking about here is be reasonable, but understand this. If your spouse legitimately has a higher sex drive, and they're like, hey, five times this week would be great, and you're like, once this month, well, then you need to, you need to work on that. You need to work on that. You need to, you need to pray about 1 Corinthians 7. You need to inventory your life. You need to see if there's some other things going on. And I would just say this as well. There are other ways you can please your spouse. There are other ways you can please your spouse. Have fun. Get in your bedroom and go at it. Enjoy. But if you're not in the mood and he's in the mood or you're not in the mood and she's in the mood, there are other ways you can fulfill that duty. Do not deny one another. Now, let's get to the latter part of this verse. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's heavy. Has no inheritance in the, king, in, in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so for those of you who are addicted to porn, for those of you who've made some mistakes and you've cheated on your wife or your husband, for those of you who've had sex outside of marriage, 
for those of you who've, who've taken a vow of abstinence but, but not purity, here's the question you need to ask. Is there conviction? Is there sorrow? And if the answer is no, you need to inventory your life. Because if there's no conviction and there's no sorrow, and there's no desire on your end to beat the sexual sin, then there's a good chance that you might not be a Christ follower. And that is sobering. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. There are deceptive words all around us. There are cries of sexual liberation. It's our culture, and yet do not be misled. The path leads to destruction. It ends badly every single time. It's like watching Game 7 of the 1997 World Series of the Cleveland Indians against the Florida Marlins on ESPN Classic. I know Jose Mesa's coming in the game, and I know he's about to blow it and will never experience a World Series championship in my life. I know what's going to happen. I've seen it before, and for those of you who right now think, oh, but I'm going to be different. My situation's going to be different. I'm going to be okay. I'm telling you, you're like the Cleveland Indians in game seven of the 97 World Series and Jose Mesa's trotting out of the bullpen. It's going to end badly for you. It does every single time. It's a path that leads to destruction. His name is Scotty Rogers. He was a pastor and a counselor in Mississippi. I'm going to read from he and his wife Amy's story. This is Scotty. In 2005, I started working as a counselor and youth minister with two other guys I considered to be close friends. It was an exciting and terrifying journey. Amy and I had been married for eight years, and things seemed to be falling into place. This is where things started to head south. In 2006, I started down the ugly path of adultery. I had waited 10 years to follow God's leading to become a youth minister, and now in my very first year, I found myself in the middle of moral failure. I know my inner demons were present long before I chose to betray my wife, but why now? This was supposed to be a time of celebrating my new career direction in ministry. Instead, it elevated my shame and would cost me dearly. From late 2006 to 2011, I lived in the darkness of betrayal, the difficulties of raising three children under the age of six, marital tension and dissatisfaction, withdrawal, anger, distance, and growing despair in our marriage were clearly heightened as a result of my secret double life. Our busy lifestyle made it somewhat manageable, or at least it distracted us from the looming emotional turmoil. Amy didn't want to live that way for the next 20 years, and we both reached a time where divorce started to feel like a possibility. I remember telling a high school friend of mine about it before the fallout, and he said, if you and Amy can't make it, then I don't know who can. Our public image and private reality didn't always match up. Divorce was not what either of us wanted, but hopelessness can suck the life out of you. 
I wanted to come clean. I wanted to be free of my adultery. I wanted to get help without confessing. I wanted it to go away. I wanted to pretend it wasn't really happening. I went back and forth between wanting to end each affair and soon giving in to them. It kept me in a constant state of guilt, shame, and disappointment and fear of being caught. The deficits I felt in my mind plus in our marriage kept me stuck. I knew I was headed down a dead-end road that would end badly, but I didn't completely stop or walk away. I was paying a huge price each time I gave in to the temptation and lust. I felt trapped like a hypocrite, anxious about getting caught, bitter, and so foolish. That's the hard part for Amy. If I loved her and our children, then how could I do such awful things? How could I be so selfish and sin against her and God, devalue the sanctity and purity of our marriage and even myself? If I would have spent more time thinking about the consequences of my sin and the reality of what I was doing, then I hopefully would have stopped long before it even got started. I didn't picture the face and heart of my wife and children or think about the devastation I would cause them. What I didn't fully recognize was that I was already hurting them in numerous ways. It's a bit easier to betray someone when you emotionally divorce them or compartmentalize your sin. Sadly, I lived in a somewhat stable life as a counselor, minister, and even husband and father, all while living in adultery. Adultery isn't something I'd ever planned to do. My grandfather and father committed adultery. I didn't want to follow in their footsteps, but I fell into the same trap. I didn't go out looking for an affair, but I also didn't safeguard against it either. One of the darkest hours in our marriage was when I called Amy on Friday, August 26, 2011, around 10.15 a.m., to tell her I had been unfaithful to her. It was like an earthquake hit our lives, our marriage, our family, and even our community. The pain was and is deep. On August 28, 2011, I resigned publicly from the church, and we started the process of sorting through, picking up, and repairing the pieces of our broken life. The words, I am sorry, seem so inadequate. The pain I have caused Amy is very real, deep, and long-term. The extent of my sin and choices even surprised me. I knew I was capable of much sin, but this, this was beyond what I ever imagined. I can't take it back. That is very difficult to admit and live with. My regrets are many in number. By the grace of God, Amy and I are still married and growing closer as a couple. We've never once said we wanted a divorce. We've never even separated. That fact alone is a testimony of God's grace, her faith in him, and the result of many prayers being answered. I know that she had and has every reason to leave me. Who would have blamed her? I am so thankful for her sticking with me. I'm so grateful that God has enabled us to stay together and work through this process. Someday, by his grace, we will be fully healed, whole, and see his amazing plan fulfilled. We never say that God wanted this to happen, but we know that he can make something amazing come out of it. And I want to let you know, if you're here today, and you have fallen, and you're struggling with sexual sin, and you're stuck, and you feel like there's no hope, and you feel like you can't get out, and you feel like God doesn't ever love you, and he can never never love you again, and you feel like your marriage is broken beyond repair, and you feel like the mistakes you've made, there's no coming back from. I just want to read you Ephesians 5, 2 one more time, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ died for our sins. He died for our porn addictions. He died for our affair. He died for the times that we fail our spouse. He died for the times that we're selfish and we aren't available sexually. He died for that, and through him, him, we can be made whole, but it's only through the grace of God, through his work on the cross on our behalf. So listen, if you're a student or you're 20 and 30, quit looking at porn. Just stop. 
You need accountability. This week in our community group, we're giving you some resources, but you need accountability. You need to build a relationship with somebody. You need to talk to Nick. You need to talk to me. You need to talk to Steve or Mitch. We're going to be available. Talk to Kelly. Talk to one of our wives. You need help. I know you think that he loves you. Or I know that you think she loves you. But keep your clothes on and quit sexting. Save it for when you're married. If you're living together, move out. And lastly, embrace the sexual desires that God has given you. God designed us this way. God designed us to enjoy sex. Embrace that fact. But wait. Be patient for his time. Value purity. Adults. Quit looking at porn. Same thing goes for you. Accountability and resources in our community groups. Talk to your kids. Everybody else is. And when you think they're too young, that's when you start. Be the first, not the last. Delight in the spouse of your youth. Remember why you chose him. Remember why you chose her. Embrace who you're with. Be sexually available. And if you're single and you're here today, know that your identity is not found in a potential spouse. Embrace your God-given desires that he's given you within his context. And if he leads that spouse into your life, then praise God. But if he doesn't, praise God. He has something else planned for you. Don't tie your self-worth into being married. And for senior adults, I would say to you, quit looking at porn. If you need to, go see a doctor. Get on the blue pill, go to the drugstore, whatever you need to do. And stop living together outside of marriage just to save Social Security money. Follow God. Sexual sin is so dangerous because it's secret. And we've got to break that. So here's what we're going to do today. The band's going to come up right now, and they're going to play a song. And I'm just going to ask you if, if your spouse is here stirring this song. And I, I know, this, grab their hand. Because there's going to be good times and there's going to be bad times. And if your palms start to sweat, I get it. That's disgusting. So you can let go and rub them on your jeans or you can just put your arm around her. I love Brooke more today than ever before, but I hardly ever hold her hand. Why? Because when we were dating, that was awesome. Now I'm just like, yeah, I'm getting a little balmy. All right? So let's just, I love you, babe. Uh, you know, if your spouse is here, and then I'm just going to ask you to leave quietly when the song's over. Go out in the comments. I'm going to hang around. Steve's going to hang around a little bit. If you don't want to talk to us this morning because you're, you're worried about what that's going to look like, I get it. Pull out your phone right now. Take out a pen. Here's my number, 330 330-705-7361. 330-705-7361. 330-705-7361. You call or text me. Don't you wait. You've been battling this long enough in secret. You aren't winning. Mesa's coming out of the bullpen, and it's not going to end well. God, let us be pure. Let us follow your boundaries. Let us set the standard. 
God, I, I pray for, for the people who are addicted to porn. God, let them get over it. Just let them get over it and let them seek out help. I pray for the spouse who feels like they're trapped. God, let them seek us out and just say, here's our situation, help. God, I pray for those who are just on the verge right now. They love you, and, and God, they're just so tempted. And they love the person that they're with, but they're just so tempted. God, I pray that they would seek out help. Let our marriages be strong. Let's honor you. God, may we set the standard of purity and reject the lies that our culture sells us. Your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.